Meanwhile in Memphis, where New Memphis is celebrating our city by providing a weekly window into the ways Memphians are solving problems, looking forward, and successfully shaping the community. Happy holidays, everybody. Welcome to Meanwhile in Memphis. I'm Anna Thompson. I am filling in for some of my lovely coworkers so they can have a much-needed respite from this crazy year. And I hope that you, like them, are taking some time to recharge, regroup for this new year. Today, we're doing something a little bit different, and we hope that you'll enjoy. You might already know, but if you're an avid listener, that we do what we call Continuing TED, which is where we replay TEDx Memphis talks from our archive and then chat with the speaker on what's new. Every year, New Memphis helps host the annual TEDx Memphis conference, where people can come together and share insights about what's new and innovate about our city. Well, today we're serving up some TED Talks woven together by a common theme. They're all personal stories or insights. First, we'll hear from Ekandayo Bandele of Hattie Lou Theater about how your cultural experiences shape who you are. Then we have Drew Holcomb, a native Memphian and singer-songwriter who leans into his life experiences and talks about how they all came together and pointed him to his career in music. Then we'll wrap up with Jennifer Alessandra's The Danger of Participation Trophies, which is both fascinating and hilarious all at the same time. To start us off, a little background on our first speaker. Ekandayo Bandele founded Hattie Lou Theater, a Black repertory, in 2006. As the theater's artistic director, he has some pretty amazing credentials. He has directed several plays that include Katori Hall's Hurt Village, As the theater's artistic director, he has some pretty amazing credentials. He has directed several plays that include Katori Hall's Hurt Village, portrayed King in August Wilson's King Headley II, wrote a popular holiday play titled If Scrooge Was a Brother, and worked as assistant director to Ruben Santiago Hudson on Paradise Blue. As Hattie Lou's administrative leader... He's spearheaded a $4.3 million capital campaign that resulted in the construction of Hattie Lou's 11,000-square-foot venue in Overton Square District. The theater opened debt-free in June 2014, and in 2016, he led a second capital campaign that raised $900,000 for the construction of the Hattie Lou Development Center, which opened in April 2017, also debt-free. So without further ado, take a listen to Ekandayo Bandele's 2018 TEDx Memphis talk titled Raising Your Cultural Quotient. Can you look at me and tell what I am made of? Can you tell my ingredients? It's kind of like that, that nursery rhyme song, what are boys made of? Frogs, snails, and puppy dog tails. That's what boys are made of. Always hated that song. Because the girls are made out of sugar and spice and everything nice, and I'm made out of that junk. <laughs> anyway, can you look at me and tell my ingredients, what I am composed of? It's actually a rhetorical question. I'm glad none of you all tried to answer. It took me a while to come up up with this lead-in. Anyway, the recipe of Ekandayo Bandali would contain things like Spike Lee movies, Chance the Rapper, a grilled skate with charred asparagus over a bed of stone ground grits at Wisteria. That's a restaurant in Atlanta. Mont Blanc pens, The New Yorker, Tony Morrison, Bob Marley, playing spades with my family. My eldest daughter, Heshepsit, plays the game like she invented it. 
My youngest daughter, Olaremi, her homemade cards, black coffee and oatmeal, top chef. Love that show. John Michelle Basquiat. Those are some of the things that make up who I am. Those are my ingredients, my personal culture. We all have that a personal culture. It communicates things about ourselves to people, things like our level of education. That may be a little misleading with me, seeing as I never got above my sophomore year in college. But if you were to look at my experiences and my library, it would suggest that of of a doctorate at best or a worldly man at least. Anyway, we all have that personal culture, and we have a culture that we share with other people, people from the same country as we're from, from the same socioeconomic class, from the same race, me. I am an African-American Gen Xer. And so the recipe of that, those ingredients include things like prints, um, plain dominoes and a haze of barbecue smoke in the backyard, HBCU homecomings, long church services, <laughs> a tribe called Quest Freaknik at Hotlanta. <laughs> I could run into any African-American Gen Xer, and more than likely, we have a couple of those cultural characteristics in common. It's our culture. Culture. Such a loaded word these days. There's a public debate going on about culture. Some Southerners are saying that Confederate monuments are part of their culture, while in the Midwest, Native people are defending burial grounds that they say is part of their culture. Culture is simply defined as the arts and other manifestations of human intellectual achievement regarded collectively. How's that for a sophomore year education? So, In 1965, there was a play, Douglas Turner Ward, A Day of Absence, opened on Broadway. It's a satire about a uh, fictionalized southern town where all of the black people suddenly disappear. I mean, the athletes, the professionals, everybody, poof, gone. The, The white mayor goes to the airwaves and he begs everybody, Come back home, come back home. Now, when we think of our culture, have you ever thought about measuring your cultural quotient? Actually trying to assess those ingredients. We all know of such a thing as an intelligence quotient. That's our IQ. It assesses our brain power. And then we, some of us know about our EI, our emotional intelligence. That measures how we regulate our emotions and those around, people around us. But what of your cultural quotient, your CQ? Why is it even important for you, for you to be able to ramble off a list of your ingredients? I mean, many of us don't even know what our IQ is, and we don't walk around measuring our feelings, so we don't know even what our EI is. But if we're not aware of our cultural quotient, our CQ, it may cause our life issues, problems. For instance, imagine with me that play, A Day of Absence. What if all the black people in the world suddenly just disappeared? All the black people from then and now. 
We have to ask ourselves, would there be a Celine Dion without a Diana Ross? Would there be a Elvis without a Chuck Berry? Would there have been a Colonel Sanders without my grandmama's cast iron fried chicken? (laughs) What would our cultural quotient be? I grew up in the era of rap. I myself was a rapper. My name was K-Kid Chillin'. Don't ask me where I came up with that moniker, but that's what I called myself. Anyway, I remember sitting out on the stoop with some friends listening to the boom box, and I heard this rap that mentioned a man named Richard Wright. I didn't know anyone named Richard Wright. I'd never heard of Richard Wright. Is he some hip-hop guru living up in the Bronx? So I decided to investigate, and I actually investigated in my eighth grade Spanish class. There I was in class with my nose pressed in the book of Richard Wright's Black Boy, completely ignoring what the teacher, Mrs. McDonald, was scribbling on the board. I actually didn't hear her call my name again and again and again. I ended up being suspended. My mom grounded me. She took my copy of Black Boy and gave me the Bible in its stead. But I have to ask myself, would I have been kicked out of school? Would I have been relegated to my bedroom with only the words of the prophets if my mother and Mrs. McDonald were aware of such thing as a cultural quotient? My literary curiosity flatlined until I attended Tennessee State University in Nashville. It happened in my sophomore year, which was my last year of college. Well, that's not entirely accurate. I did transfer to Morehouse, but that didn't stick. Anyway, in my second year, um, a man named Dr. James Birdsong gave me a, a little book. It was a collection of five black plays. That book resuscitated my cultural expansion, and it did so at a most critical time. I mean, like most black kids that were born and raised in the 70s, we grew up in the shadow of a mountain that was white culture. There's Shakespeare, there's General George Custer, there's George Washington, there's the Founding Fathers. There we are, growing up in that shadow while being taught that our own culture was less than 100 years old, and that it was a molehill in comparison. But that little book and my brief time at Tennessee State University, it set me on a cultural quest of self-discovery. I started to write plays. I started to help people with their plays. I started to read black intellectuals, people like Ivan Van Sertema, Dr. Francis Cresswellsing, Dr. Youssef Benyakinen. I was one of those brothers out on the yard with dreadlocks, smelling like patchouli, listening to Public Enemy, sporting red, black, and green paraphernalia. But even then, my cultural quotient wouldn't allow me to just confine myself to the bounds of an African-American Gen Xer. And that's what we do, isn't it? those of us with the flame of curiosity still burning in our chests, we go outside of ourselves to explore different things. I remember a friend of mine visited my dorm room. I had two posters on the wall, one of Malcolm X and one of William Faulkner. And my friend was like, bruh, 
what's, what's up with the white dude on your wall? And I was like, bruh, say what you want, but that white dude can write. Have you read Absalom, Absalom? And, and that was the point. Steps along my cultural quest. I mean, Faulkner led me to Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison led me to Gabriel Garcia Marquez. There I was at the university where my focus was supposed to be my intelligence quotient, my IQ, but I was steadily developing my cultural quotient, my CQ. And it makes you ask, what about those kids who try and try and try again at college? And it just doesn't seem to stick. We try so hard because college is the natural progression after high school. We get in, we end up dropping out like I did. Some of us feel like failures. Sometimes we feel dumb because we couldn't hack it with the books. But we're out there hacking it at something. It may not be our IQ. It could be our CQ or even our EI. And why should my understanding of applied mathematics be valued more than my understanding of Don Quixote or my ability to write a play and let you into my world as an African-American Gen Xer? Culture. We're at a very important time of our history right now. There is a uh, term being used. It's called the Browning of America. It is the phenomena in which American minorities will soon become the American majority. The advent of President Barack Obama and that of his successor, Donald Trump, it has aimed a magnifying glass on American culture. We recently had white supremacists marching and chanting, you shall not replace us. And you know what? They're right. We will not replace them. But if they could set aside their fear, their anger, what, their angst, whatever it is, and replace it with the beauty of cultural expansion, we can add to them. Think of it like this. Flour, oil, celery, onions, peppers, sausage, shrimp. Those things are just ingredients. But when they come together, they become something that they couldn't become on their own. Gumbo, Toni Morrison, Spike Lee, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Those are my ingredients. And we as a nation have been adding ingredients to our pot for the last 100 years. Think of it. At the turn of last century, there were no black or brown people on Broadway. And if they were in film, they were in film as derogatory stereotypes. But by the 1950s, you had a brown person, a Cuban, Desi Arnaz, starring in one of our country's most beloved sitcoms, I Love Lucy. At the same time, Lorraine Hansberry's play, A Raisin in the Sun, it opened on Broadway. Right now, Lin-Manuel Miranda is redefining American musicals with his musical, Hamilton. We are exploding, culturally speaking. Where there was just one mountain, there are now dozens. 
African-American culture is a mountain. Hispanic culture is a mountain. Native American culture, Pacific Islander, Asian. We are witnessing a cultural seismic shift. But are we pulling ourselves away from our computer screens, our tablets, and our phones long enough, not just to witness it, but to participate in it? We all know that having a low IQ could make it difficult for you to get that job that you want. Having a low EI could set you on an island where you don't want to be around people and people don't want to be around you. But what about your cultural quotient? What's the danger of having a low cultural quotient? Think about it like this. If you're only familiar with uh, uh, classical ballet, you may look at the dance form known as jukin and think of it as an amateurish counterfeit instead of a bona fide art form. We stunt the growth of our cultural selves when we deny experiences in other cultures and with other people. I don't think any of us would subject ourselves to the reality found in Douglas Turner Ward's play, A Day of Absence. And so I challenge all of us to not only become aware of our CQ, but to work at expanding it. Listen to Beethoven instead of Garth Brooks. Visit a synagogue during the high holy days. Why don't you record and binge watch later Greenleaf so that you can tune in to Vikings. Read Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Read Alexander Solzhenitsyn and discover the gulags in Russia. I promise you, both your head and your heart will thank you. Thank you. In the new Memphis, we never settle for the status quo. Medical advancements are part of our DNA. Did you know one in three Memphians work in the healthcare industry? Memphis is the home of several world-class, innovative healthcare facilities, including St. Jude and Le Bonheur. There is a lot to celebrate about our city. Learn more at newmemphis.org. So that was Ekendayo Bandele's Raising Your Cultural Quotient, his 2018 TEDx Memphis talk. I loved when he talked about stunting your cultural growth by keeping those blinders on. So I would challenge everybody listening to take the blinders off in 2021 and open yourself up to new cultural experiences that will not only benefit yourself, but our community as we look towards the future. Next in our continuing TED personal stories lineup is singer-songwriter Drew Holcomb. As a road warrior for more than a decade, Drew spent his adulthood on stage and on the road traveling from place to place with a catalog of vibrant, honest songs that explore the full range of the American Roots music. A turning point came when the song Live Forever from his 2011 Chasing Someday album landed multiple TV placements, and gradually Holcomb noticed larger crowds singing along with him at his shows. To date, Holcomb has released more than 10 albums and has an annual festival in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He is the husband to fellow singer-songwriter Ellie Holcomb and the father of three, and his music focuses on things that truly stick with you—family and friends, music and memories, people and places. 
So let's take a listen to Drew Holcomb's 2018 TEDx Memphis talk titled, Your Dreams Don't Belong to You. Your dreams don't belong to you. If you hold on too tightly to them without recognizing the mutual and communal nature of creativity, your work will probably not have significant impact in the world. I think this is true across every creative medium, but the lens of my experience is music. Uh, The dream was music and is music, and my music does not belong to me. I failed Rock and Roll 101. The first rule of Rock and Roll 101 is you have to hate school. I love school. Love school from kindergarten all the way to college. And if you ask the folks I went to high school with here in Memphis if they thought that I would end up being a musician, they would have said, absolutely not. He's going to be a lawyer, maybe a history professor, but certainly not an artist. The second rule of Rock and Roll 101 that I failed uh, was you're supposed to rebel against your parents. I didn't really do that either. you know, mildly here and there in middle school, but um, I got along great with my, with my parents and my entire family. Music was a, a big part of our household. Music filled the, the space in our house and on road trips. Um, as a matter of fact, when I graduated from the University of Tennessee, I came home uh, to Memphis and told my dad I wanted to have breakfast with him to talk about my, my future. And so we went to the coffee shop, the bagel shop there at, at Kirby and Poplar. And I told him I wanted to be a traveling singer songwriter. How do you feel about that? Which is not exactly a dream conversation for most parents. And he asked me one question. He said, are you going to work hard at it? And I said, yes, sir, I am. And he said, all right, well, let's go to the guitar shop, get you a new guitar, send you on your way. And that night I asked my mom the same thing. I said, mom, what do you think about this? And she said, I, I'm, I'm fine with it if you make me one promise. I said, what's that? She said, just promise me I can always understand the lyrics. <laughs> Simple but tough request for some artists. The thing that uh, I love about music um, was the communal nature of it, the the dancing, singing, going to festivals. Uh, I saw that music tells us our stories better than we can even tell them to ourselves. It speaks to our suffering, it speaks to our joy, makes us want to dance, makes us want to weep, makes us want to take a road trip, make love, and it narrates all the most personal and important moments in our life. When I was 17, uh, I went through a personal tragedy. I was out of the country for the summer learning Spanish, and I got a phone call that my younger brother had passed away, surprisingly and suddenly in the night. Now, my brother Jay uh, suffered from spina bifida. I was in a wheelchair, but it still was a a massive surprise. I was devastated. I was uh, overwhelmed with grief, and the thing that met me more than anything else in my grief was music. I found myself listening to Radiohead and U2 Van Morrison and David Gray, sometimes alone, sometimes with friends. And in that, I saw this incredible paradox that life is tragic and life is beautiful and music held those things together in tension better than anything else in my life did. So out of the soil of that uh, suffering, that experience, uh, I started to dream about making music. I wanted to make music that made people feel the way I felt in my darkest hour and maybe gave them a glimmer of hope in theirs. So with the support of my family and my community, I started making music. And I learned that my music didn't belong to me. First, uh, our dreams belong to those that came before us. The thing, one of the many things I love about music is how you, you find this artist that you like. Let's say for me, it was Ryan Adams. And it's like going into a Ryan Adams room and you listen to all his records. And then you want to find out where he came from. And so you end up in the Bob Dylan room. And then, 
And then you end up in the Woody Guthrie room, and you're like, well, who else did Woody Guthrie inspire? And you're like, oh, I'm over in the Springsteen room. And then you find out you're over here in the Otis Redding room. And then you're in the Aretha Franklin room. Then you're in the Carol King room. The next thing you know, you've spent a whole lot of money, and you've loved lots and lots of music. And you've been inspired by all this different stuff. It's beautiful. It's a family tree. And I love that about music. All of our creativity, no matter what we do, is rooted in the work of our predecessors. The second thing I learned that our dreams belong to our fellow dreamers. No matter what you do in your creative life, you have peers. For me, that's fellow songwriters, musicians, producers. And there's uh, friction there. There's competition. There's challenge. There's encouragement. It's a tough task to learn how to harness the jealousy and the comparison. But a lot of the artistic growth happens in that life on life that happens between you and your peers. Uh, I remember six or seven years ago, I was, I was two weeks away from starting a record that we came, to Na- came back from Nashville here to Memphis to record it down the street at Ardent Studios, which is an amazing place. And uh, I wanted to play some of the songs for a good friend of mine. His name's Thad Cockrell. He's an artist that I respect a lot. And so I wanted to play the songs for him, get his, get his feedback. So I play, I play three or four songs, and my wife Ellie, who's, who's in my band, my band at the time, was there with me, and I start playing this song, and I, I sing it like this. Sometimes I wake up with the sadness of the days, it feels like madness, so what would I do without, stop, 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 he says. I'm like, you don't interrupt me. It's like, you know, I, it's not, I don't want that much of your input. So he says, no, 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 no. So he says, no, 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 and he gets literally right in my face, two inches from my face, and he goes, Drew. Sing it to me like I'm right here. Sometimes I wake up with the sadness of the day. Feels like madness. Oh, what would I do without you? And just like that, I had this entirely new palette to paint with that I didn't know was in me. And it's that friction, artist on artist, spurs our creative growth. Our role as musicians, as artists, is to, to, to make sense of the world through adding shape and color and noise to the world. And it's, it's, if you look at music history, this happens in the context of community. If you look at some great examples, um, Barry Gordy in Detroit, Motown Records. He gathers these songwriters like Smokey Robinson, Holland Holland and Dozier, and these incredible young artists like The Supremes, The Temptations, Jackson 5, Marvin Gaye. And in this moment in, in history, in this particular zip code, magic happens and changes the course of music forever. Same thing happens in Laurel Canyon in the 70s around the Troubadour on Santa Monica Boulevard. Joni Mitchell, the Eagles, Jackson Brown, James Taylor, Elton John, all these incredible artists that literally their music defined a generation. It happened in this one particular place in community. I don't have to tell you that that's true here in Memphis as well. You have this uh, ambitious young producer, starts Sun Records, Sam Phillips, and he finds artists like Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis, and literally changed history in this community of creative friction, tension, and encouragement, the shared dream. The third group that our dreams belong to, not without sounding cheesy, because it rhymes, I'm not trying to rhyme, uh, our dreams belong to the whole team. If you look on stage with me, you're going to see five people. You've got the, all, the, all the band members. And if you, if you get to know everybody, you're going to find five different first albums five different stories, five different first concerts, five different loves. Everybody's got their own thing that they bring to the table of making this thing happen. It's not just on stage. If you go to the soundboard and you talk to my sound guy, Thomas, 
You want to know his story? He's a liner note guy. He's listening to all these different records. Why does the drum on this record sound like this? And why does it sound different on this record? And he's learning microphones and compression and all these things that make music sound like it does, but also learning architecture of rooms and why does the bass sound so loud in this room and it's so soft in this other room and how can I fill it up to make it sound the way we need it to sound every night? Same thing happens with the lighting director, happens with your managers, your booking agents who went to see shows, realized they didn't have any talent and decided they could learn the business side of it and make it happen. <laughs> all of these things are puzzles that make the whole thing work. Lastly, your dreams belong to the Anybody in the world who lets your creative work into their life. I wrote a song years ago in, a, in sort of a, a, a bad moment for me. My career wasn't doing very well. I wasn't making any money. My van had just died. We, had no, we were borrowing cars to go from place to place. And uh, we were, had picked a date to hang it up. Not out of bitterness, just like, hey, it's not working. We need to hang it up. So we had a, a one year left of obligations to fulfill. My sister called me and told me she was moving from Nashville to uh, Panama and I was overwhelmed with sadness because my three nieces and nephew were like the one shining light of hope in my life because um, I was so overwhelmed with kind of depression about the career not going well, but they didn't care about my career. They just loved me. So I wrote this song one night for them. I wrote it not for radio. I didn't write it for TV and film. I didn't write it to be cool. I wrote it as a gift to my nieces and nephews. Release the song, it becomes the song that sort of defined our career. A song called Live Forever. It gets picked up and put on all these different TV shows, Parenthood, Deadliest Catch, House, a few others. Next thing you know, our numbers in different towns are doubling, and it was all because of this song, the song that we gave away. A year later, I get an email from a girl. She says, I have no idea how I know your music. I don't know you at all. But somehow your music ended up on my phone, and my phone died, and I had a playlist of only 14 songs, and yours was on there. One night I decided life was too hard. I was going to give it up. I was going to kill myself. And all I had was this playlist. And the songs honestly were taking me deeper and darker into this moment. And then your song came on. It made me feel like maybe I didn't want to give up yet. Maybe I wanted to give it another try, another day. I just wanted to tell you thank you. In that moment I realized my dream came true. Made someone feel the way I felt in my darkest hour, but it wasn't just me. It was the whole team. It was the music that I'd fallen in love with over time. It was the producer and the engineer who made the song, the band that made the song. Together, we made this dream come true. If you share your dreams, they just might come true. Thank you. is transforming our city through the power of connection. Be sure to stay connected with us by following at the New Memphis on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Gosh, I love that TED Talk. At the end of his talk, Drew says, if you share your dreams, they might just come true. Well, as it turns out, a few more of Drew's dreams did come true recently. Though 2020 was an unconventional year to say the least, Holcomb still made a name for himself. His song, Family, was featured in a 2020 commercial for Tyson Brands in May. And to top it off, as part of a campaign for the Tennessee Department of Tourist Development, Drew and his wife Ellie, both Tennessee natives, hit the road for an epic 1600 RV trek through our great volunteer state with their kids in tow. You can follow along with their journey 
with a multi-part web series on his social media pages as they explore hidden gems through our state and the natural wonders, all while social distancing. Wrapping up our time today is Jennifer Alessandra. Jennifer joined Front Door, Inc. in 2019 as Senior Vice President and Chief People Officer. Prior to working at Front Door, Alessandro served as the Chief People Officer for Solar Winds, where she led teams in 16 countries and was a key member of the mergers and acquisitions team there. Passionate about giving back to the community, Alessandra has been a board member and advisor at nonprofit organizations, including Homeboy Industries and Central Texas Food Bank. Alessandra is a graduate of the University of Southern California, where she earned her bachelor's and master's degrees. She was a collegiate athlete, which will be no surprise to you as you listen to her TED Talk, and she was part of USC's National Championship swimming and diving team in 1997. She proudly answers to the titles of wife, mom, dog lover, traveler, and competitor in pretty much everything, which again will be no surprise to you in just a few minutes. So here to close us out today, let's hear from Jennifer's 2020 TEDx Memphis talk titled The Danger of Participation Trophies. Think about an accomplishment that you are particularly proud of, one that took grit and perseverance and determination. Think about all the things that you learned on that path to victory. The thrill of victory exists when a long-standing goal is achieved, when we're at the top of that mountain and can look out and enjoy the view and savor what it took to get to the top. Some of you may remember ABC's Wide World of Sports back in the day, long before ESPN and specific channels dedicated to football, soccer, or fly fishing. Each Sunday, the broadcast drew highlights from sports around the world, depicting competition at its finest. Even if you don't know the show, you may know its famous tagline, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. The original images from the 70s were too low resolution to use here, so we grabbed more recent ones. <laughs> I grew up as an athlete, and as far back as I can remember, I was in competition of some kind. When I was five, I recall winning the sit-up competition at our gym. And the reward was a day of training with the elite-level gymnasts, which is a big deal when you're five. Through gymnastics and later springboard and platform diving, I learned goal-setting, hard work, and resilience. And lessons in sports proved instructive in life. So fast forward several decades, my son Joshua started playing youth soccer when he was six. Now, I did not anticipate this would be the start of his journey to the World Cup, but I did think he would have fun and begin to get a taste of some of the lessons I found so valuable growing up as an athlete. Instead, he got a participation trophy. You've got to be kidding me. In my time as an athlete and competitor, trophies were reserved for top-level performance, mastering a skill, you know, victory. This new world where you could show up and get a trophy was shocking. Even worse, some of the kids failed to make it to half the games, and they still got a trophy. I was outraged. Not only were these participation trophies effectively party favors, 
disturbing the kid's ability to differentiate between participation and achievement. But once this phenomenon entered my consciousness, I couldn't get it out. I started seeing the dangers of participation trophies everywhere. I was stalked by imaginary people, <laughs> children and adults, protectively encased against failure by those trying to guard them from the truth. You may be asking, what's the big deal? They're kids. What are the dangers of participation trophies, really? Lessons in sports turn into lessons in life. It is critically important that we pay attention to these dangers and ask what we can do about it. Participation trophies became a thing to give positive reinforcement to children and to reward something other than winning, which are noble goals. However, the unintended outcome of participation trophies, whether they're handed out on the soccer field to six-year-olds or delivered through indirect feedback in a performance review to 36-year-olds, are long-lasting and far-reaching. You see, for rewards to work, they need to be earned. When rewards are earned, internal motivation is created. Achievement, not empty praise, leads to self-esteem and then further achievement. Participation trophies can stunt competitiveness and lead to entitlement. They thwart entrepreneurial thinking, invention, and innovation by strangling the drive to continuously improve. In an attempt to spare children the hurt that comes with failure, participation trophies rob kids of learning by losing. So let's put aside sports for a moment and take a look at what this is like in education and then in the lives of adults. When Joshua was in elementary school, his school had awards for honor roll, citizenship, and attendance. I thought this was a great blend of rewarding academic accomplishments, good values and behaviors, and stressing the importance of showing up every day. It also began to teach the kids the value of making good decisions and how to spend their time wisely. The kids strived for these awards. Someone after it, they wanted to get all three, have the trifecta. Others were focused on being good members of the community, even if their grades weren't top-notch, or going for perfect attendance. The fifth graders were the big dogs of the school. And as the year-end approached, the award ceremony was coming up, and Josh and his friends were talking about finishing strong. And then we received the email. The principal announced that there would no longer be awards for honor roll, citizenship, or attendance. And instead, everyone would receive a certificate of accomplishment. <laughs> they would be called up on stage one by one, welcomed by their teachers with a hug or a handshake, and be told, we're proud of you. What? <laughs> the parents in my community were dumbfounded. And the kids were just as confused. Mom, what's the point if everybody gets a certificate? Yeah, exactly. So we're not rewarding good grades, good conduct, or showing up every day. And instead, we're giving a hollow, we're proud of you, with the misguided belief that somehow saying the same thing to everybody levels the playing field, protecting those who might be hurt by others' achievements, and bringing the achievers down to earth. There's a lot to be learned from failure and disappointment. 
Resilience, picking yourself up and coming back after a setback. Think about Edison and Einstein and countless other inventors, founders of companies. A common thread in their personal narrative is relentless problem solving in pursuit of a goal. Edison failed over 10,000 times when he was working to develop the commercially viable light bulb. Did that crush his self-esteem or lead him to give up? No. He actually didn't think he had failed. He believed he found 10,000 ways that did not work. And once he exhausted all the ways that would not work, it would lead him to the way that would work. I'm not minimizing the struggle within each of us when we have failure and disappointment. That's real. I am emphasizing that achievement, not empty praise, leads to self-esteem. Okay. So what can we do about this phenomenon that's wrecking our society? There's three things. First, practice losing and failing gracefully. It takes six to 10 years to develop a skill, to master it. Imagine the implications if we started this at age eight instead of age 18. The impact to our society could be huge. Think about a disappointment or a failure you had. What did you learn from it? Those are the learnings that we're going after. Give yourself and those around you the space to lose and learn from it, starting as soon as possible. Second, practice reflection and build self-awareness. This is a dying art. Ask yourself each day, how did I win today? What could I do better tomorrow? Focus on personal accountability, what you control and influence. Meritocracy is a system that rewards talent, effort, and results. If a meritocracy does not exist in the community you're a part of, you can begin to create it grassroots by practicing this type of reflection. In the wake of the death of Achievement Awards at our elementary school, something beautiful happened. Myself and the other parents flooded the principal's inbox with a piece of our mind. And then, and only then, did we reflect and ask, okay, what do we want to bring awareness to with our children? And then we created our own. We just did it ourselves. It's too important to leave to somebody else. Third, practice giving and receiving feedback. This one's my favorite. I have spent my career building companies that people want to be a part of, and feedback can be transformational. I commonly spot challenges in giving and receiving feedback during merit review time. Those of you who are in business are likely familiar this time, with this time of year when performance is assessed and salary increases are given. It's a merit increase, so performance drives the size of the salary increase. Say the budget's 3%. Some people will get a 3% salary increase and some will get more and some will get less, right? Well, I spot challenges when a manager asks for a 3% salary increase across the board for every single one of his or her employees. The not-so-technical term is peanut buttering. Think about the impact of peanut butter on high performers. What do you think happens? It sucks. The lack of meritocracy is disheartening. What about the impact of peanut butter on those who are struggling? 
Well, they may not be very motivated to improve their performance because what difference is it going to make? And without that critical feedback, they may not know how. Transparency and telling ourselves the truth yields personal development. Just say no to peanut butter. Invest in feedback. These concepts are applicable in all areas of life. Resist the urge to live a life portraying an image that everything is awesome. One sometimes we learn the most by talking about situations that are not awesome. Have critical conversations early. Don't wait until something blows up. If we did this well, performance in our workforce and our schools would improve, the divorce rate would drop dramatically, and the rate of personal development would skyrocket. But these are topics for another time. These three tips are not quick fixes. They are investments in the future of our society. If you think I'm being overly dramatic, rely on the recent history's most prolific innovators and inventors and what their wisdom is. Thank you for listening. It was refreshing to be reminded of a talk that while given in February of this year still feels like it happened a lifetime ago. It was comforting to know that we don't have to pretend like everything is awesome all the time. Because like she said, sometimes everything is just not awesome. 2020 has definitely taught us that. As we go into a new year, how can you just say no to peanut buttering? How can you lean in to some hard feedback? What are some areas in your life where transparency will allow for growth? I challenge you to think about that as we move forward into a new year. As we're wrapping up today, I wanted to shine a spotlight on one of New Memphis Leadership Development Programs, our launch work. I've brought in my lovely colleague, Anna Warman, because New Memphis does not have enough Annas on staff. (laughs) And she's going to chat a little bit about what our collegiate engagement work looks like, why it's so important, and why college is such a pivotal time for young talent, and how New Memphis is stepping in to kind of assist them and prop them up as they make some pretty big decisions. So welcome, Anna, to the studio. Hello, everybody. So glad to be here. So, um, you know, we were sitting in here, right, and I was listening to all of these TED Talks. We were um, listening to Drew Holcomb and and how his life changed, right? There was a really pivotal moment in, in changing. Um, and then the last talk, she's saying, um, you know, don't peanut butter spread, right? Peanut buttering, yeah. Peanut buttering, yes, absolutely. So, you know, I, th- I think back to when I was in college and um, – I didn't know what I was doing. Did you have any idea? <laughs> no. I mean, you know, you you don't know what you're doing. Um, you're in this new world, right? You're in this new role of being an adult. And you're really sitting there and and questioning yourself, questioning, you know, what decisions do you make? Now, you know, you don't have to ask your parents what time you go to bed, right? You don't have to ask your parents what time you come home. But now you're responsible for remembering to study, and to right. make those good grades and do those great things. And um, it's just such a pivotal time in your life and, and you don't know what's going on. 
And, you know, I remember my first year in college, um, really the first few days, I'm sitting there talking to my advisor and she's like, what do you what do you want to do with your life? Loaded question, huh? Yeah. Right. (laughs) For an 18 year old. And I paused and like deer in the headlights said, I I don't I don't know. I think I want to go into the medical field. I always wanted to be a vet when I was growing up, you know? I mean, like, <laughs> Sorry, for, that's just comical for those of us, I feel like, that know. It's you know, hilarious, personally. right? Yes. Um, <laughs> am I a dog lover? Absolutely. Am I someone that you want to um, have your pet go under with? Absolutely not. Um, I can take them to the dog park all day long, but not a vet, right? Um, so <laughs> it really took me by surprise, which it shouldn't have, uh, that I'm I'm having to make a decision for the rest of my life. I'd sure I'd had odd jobs here and there, right? I'd had um, uh, you know, I'd, I'd studied quote unquote in mm-hmm. high school about all the things that you're supposed to do, but deciding what you want to do for the rest of your life and picking a major that yeah. sets you up for success or not for in the success next four years or-, or five years, however many years you're in college, right? I mean, yeah, just just. Making that decision, it was so big, and I didn't know what to do. So, you know, part of what New Memphis does um, is we have a program called Launch, and it's focused on college students. It's focused on, um, you know, really setting them up for success. We're really that leg of them to say, we can support you. We can give you that network that we need. We can introduce you to the right people. We can introduce you to the to the different types of opportunities that are available here in Memphis. Right. Because that's like what you're saying is yeah. a lot of times you don't know the right answer because you, you just haven't been exposed to exactly. all the possibilities. You don't know what you don't know at 18 or exactly. at 25 or at 30. And so I feel like one of the best things that our collegiate leadership development programming does is provide that pivotal assist for collegiate yep. students. So you don't know what you want to be, but let's explore that. Let's explore what some opportunities are. What do you like? What do you not like? What are you good at? Yeah, How can you, you transition that into, you know, being a nine to five or, a, <laughs> exactly. you know, seven to three or an entrepreneur or, you know, Any so. of those things, right? And and we make it okay as we're going through this process. We, we make it okay to say, you know, you thought you wanted to go down this path because you thought you were good at this. But there's so many other opportunities out there that you don't know. So many amazing businesses and organizations in this city that you're not aware of. I mean, it's it's just, it's incredible. And, you know, going back to, to the network, right? I kind of skipped over that. And that's such, a, that's such an important thing to talk about. What's a network, mm-hmm. right? Um, sure, you'll have a friend group. Right, you you have this probably social several. Group. Yeah, yeah. Go you ahead and this... give you the benefit of the doubt. You probably have several friend groups, <laughs> so... even in a virtual world, <laughs> yeah. a time of COVID. You still probably have several friend groups. Yeah. But do you have those professional yeah. networks that can really assist you when it comes time to applying for jobs, filling out applications, getting recommendations? Exactly. I your mean... interview process. Do you have those kind of? resources in your corner. And that's what launches. Exactly. I mean, we have research that shows that the majority of internships, um, the majority of first jobs are um, provided to individuals because they knew them, right? They got that because they knew someone at that company. They had that, that you know, foot in the door. Mm-hmm. And um, not everybody knows everybody, 
You know, how I mean, can you? I mean, my word, we're can't. all homebound at exactly. this point. I mean, especially this year, right? <laughs> it's it's so hard. And so um, launch is just the opportunity for college students to get that foot in the door, to meet those people, to learn about themselves, to learn about other organizations um, and businesses out there, to learn about other um, sectors and opportunities and specific jobs. Um it's, you know, it's a series of free events over the course of each semester, uh, the fall, the spring, and then the summer. Um, and what you do is you not only find a network of local college students, find a network of local business leaders, uh, but you also get to explore um, businesses themselves, right? Uh, for example, coming up in the spring, uh, we're going to have a, a session on commercial real estate. Ooh. Yeah, like it's booming, right? It is absolutely booming in the midst of a pandemic. And like, sure, you may know, you know, your friend's mom is like a real estate agent, right? But that's so different than commercial, commercial real, real estate. estate. And so we're going to learn about what in the world it is and then meet some incredible, incredible individuals from amazing companies um, that are doing that right here in Memphis. Um, one of those being, you know, Daryl Cobbins. Like he is one of our board members and he runs an incredible organization and he is an amazing person to know. Right. So at the end of the day, you're really getting that face to face opportunity to meet with these really really incredible business leaders that you're not going to have an opportunity to to get to know um, later in life, right? You may happen across them. You may find someone who ends up knowing someone who knows someone who knows these people. With New Memphis and with Launch, you have that opportunity immediately, right now, before you enter the job market, to get to know these people and to really get your foot in the door and, and I would have died for this opportunity at that. And you the know? biggest thing, I think, is to get to know what it is you actually might want to do exactly. and what is out there that marries your, you know, desires, your interests, your abilities with what our city and our community needs. So yep. New Memphis's launch is an opportunity for college students at every level to meet peers, meet leaders, and meet Memphis. So you can learn more by going to newmemphislaunch.org. As you are thinking about your end of year giving and just as your heart is brimming over with all of the generosity that I know you all are feeling, I would remind you that New Memphis is a nonprofit. And if you love the work that you hear us uh, push in front of you every week on Meanwhile in Memphis, please consider making a gift to New Memphis. If you go to newmemphis.org, that is where you can learn more about all of our programs. You can peruse our impact report to get a sense of how your dollars will be invested in the coming year. Um, but what we know here at New Memphis is that we have to invest in our city's most important resource. It's people. People are what power great organizations and successful cities. And as we continue to pursue economic development, a talented, a talented connected, and growing workforce is totally crucial as we think about a gro growing Memphis. So if this is important to you, if you're thinking about Memphis is a place that you want to continue to see be livable and lovable. Make a gift to New Memphis this year. A donation of any size makes a difference. We appreciate it. Again, go to newmemphis.org forward slash donate. And as always, we hope you like what you heard today. And if so, we would ask that you consider calling in to leave us a voicemail to let us know. Which interviews did you really enjoy? Did you learn something new about our great city, something new to celebrate as you go into a new year? We would really love to hear from you. Just call 
1-800-460-3031. Just leave us a quick message and tell us what you loved about the show and we would greatly appreciate it. That way you can hear more of all the things you love and less of the things you don't. Mm -hmm. So one more time, that number is 901-460-3031. Thanks. That does it for us today. We at New Memphis hope you have a wonderful morning and we hope you have a wonderful new year. See you in 2021. Bye. Meanwhile in Memphis is brought to you in partnership with WYXR, produced by New Memphis and hosted by Anna Mullins Ellis and Christy Mullen. For more information, please visit newmemphis.org. Audio for this show is recorded and produced by the OAM Network. For more information, please visit pod901.com. Dot com.